I was a voracious reader as a kid. I would read two books a day. I remember going to the local library. You were allowed to check out 10 books at a time. I always got 10. The amount of entertainment and development and growth that you can get from books at a library, I mean, that was a huge part of my childhood. My guest today, Mansi Shah, spent years building this stunning career as a lawyer in the fast-moving world of Hollywood entertainment, working with some of the most iconic storytellers in the industry. But behind her success as an entertainment lawyer, a lifelong yearning was brewing. She felt deeply called to not just help others tell their story, often built around narratives that just didn't resonate with her background, but to actually be the storyteller herself and to focus her lens on bringing the authentic immigrant experience, her own personal and family story, to a wider audience. So she started writing her own stories, eventually penning the book that would become the groundbreaking and beautiful novel, The Taste of Ginger. But that journey was anything but easy or linear. Over the 10 years since she started writing, the story in the book has taken countless turns, the early manuscript was, in fact, rejected by the very editor who years later would circle back to ask for and acquire and then champion the book. And along the way, Mansi's lens on what this story could be and needed to be and how she needed to honor her creative impulse, her commitment to advocacy, and desire to speak to people who were so often left out of the popular storytelling narrative, that evolved and became centered in a way that really only time and reflection could have crafted. And we explore all of this in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So it's really fun. We're hanging out having this conversation right now, literally on the eve of the release of your first big book. And I am deeply fascinated in the journey that brought you to this moment in time, in addition to the book itself and the story, because it, it relates in so many ways to to the story that brought you here. Let's take a step back in time. Born in Toronto, but raised, it sounds like, across a range of tiny towns all over the Midwest US. What was going on there? <laughs> Yeah, so we um, so we left Canada when I was four. Um, so I have some very early memories in Canada. But so we left Toronto and we moved to a tiny town with a population of five thousand on the Oklahoma Texas border. So growing up, I lived everywhere for five years, and it was my dad changed jobs, and so we left um, when we left Oklahoma. We then went to Hannibal, Missouri which was a thriving metropolis of 18,000 from the 5,000. It was the boyhood home of Mark Twain. So everything about that town was Mark Twain, this and that. I know an insane amount about Mark Twain. (laughs) Um, So we lived there for five years. And then from there, we moved to the suburbs of Chicago, where I had a lot of relatives and cousins. And so it was my first time, it was still one of the more outskirt suburbs that we moved to. And so it was still a pretty white community. Like there are parts of Chicago that have a lot of immigrant communities and a lot of Indian people, but where we lived (laughs) was not bad. It was sort of a continuation of Oklahoma and Missouri. And so I went to, when I went to university, I went to University of Illinois for my undergraduate. And it was the first time in my life I was around Indian people who weren't relatives or family friends. And so it was, you know, I think that that whole journey was very interesting. So I finished university. I went on exchange to Australia. I have this insane need to travel. And I don't know if it's because we moved so much when I was a kid that I get itchy feet and can't stay in one place. Um, So I went on exchange to Australia and I moved to L.A., for law school. And then when I hit the five-year mark in LA, I think my body said, oh no, you're not allowed to be somewhere longer than five years. So I moved to London. (laughs) Um, And then, so I feel like as an adult, I started moving to what I call cool places. (laughs) Um, So I moved to Melbourne, Australia. I moved to London. And then I came back to LA. And I've been in LA for the longest stretch I've been anywhere in my entire life. (laughs) Mm. Um, So, um, so that, 
And I think as, I, as I've been in cities now for most of adulthood, I really, I'm, I'm just someone who craves knowing the world myself. Um, I, I've done your Sparkotype test. I'm a maven and I'm such a maven. I'm a maven advocate and that is me, 110%. But I think I had that in me and I just want to understand the way the world works because I grew up in such a different way from the way I'm living now as an adult. I was also a psychology major, so I have to overanalyze and overthink everything. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I was so curious how that shaped me. And so that's what a lot of that is what got poured into the book is this belonging and identity. And the, the main character in my book is, is different from me in the sense of I have her born in India and living in India till she was seven because I wanted that story of someone who once belonged and knew what that felt like to lose it, sort of more what my parents experienced, although they experienced it, they came over as adults. And I realized for someone like me, I have never belonged. I have always been an immigrant, whether it's Canada or the U.S., you know, I have never been in a predominantly Indian society where belonging was given for me. And so I really just wanted to explore that idea because it's common for a lot of people. It's not necessarily common for me exactly, you know, parts of it are, but all of that, it's, it's definitely the taste of ginger, like my life story, life story of cousins, my parents, like so many people has woven its way into that. Yeah. So we need to unpack a whole bunch of this. <laughs> um, it's interesting. So you choose a character to write about when you finally make this big jump um, to writing a book that starts with a sense of belonging is in a culture where they are part of that culture. And you describe yourself as never having had that literally uh, to this day in your life. When you're growing up, Indian family, Indian kid bouncing around small towns in the USA What's that experience like for you as a young kid? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I grew up knowing I was different. There were things about me, my name, my diet. You know, we grew up with a Hindu vegetarian diet. So when you went to school, you were the kid that had different food and things like that. And so it's interesting because I compare myself to my cousins a lot, like who grew up in the suburbs of Chicago um, and had a big Indian community. And in some ways, my brother and I stayed a lot truer to the culture because we didn't see any other Indian kids doing anything different, right? So we only had ourselves and our unit. And so that was all we knew, but we knew that we were different. And so I think there was definitely you wanted to blend in. Like I couldn't do anything about the way I looked. I couldn't do anything about my name. I guess I could have done something about my diet, but it was one of those things where I remember thinking to myself, well, if you're different in all these other ways, what does it matter when it comes to the food? But I remember my parents were actually very aware of the fact that we were going through these differences. And so I remember my dad saying to me as a kid, if you want to eat meat, 
we'll let you eat meat, um, but mom's not going to cook it, we'll take you out to go eat it, which seems very fair. <laughs> um, you know, it, it seems fair that my vegetarian mother shouldn't have to cook meat for us. And for both my brother and I, we were given the choice and neither one of us ever took it. And I know for me, it was just, here's another thing that makes you different if you don't have a strong desire to do that. Like, I think for me, the cost benefit was it's not going to help you blend enough. Um, and so it wasn't worth doing. But I think there was, like, I was quiet as a kid. I was the person in the back of the room. I didn't raise my hand. I was, you know, that sort of model minority from early childhood of get good grades, work really hard, do what you can to fit in. And, you know, we always had friends. I didn't have, you know, there, there are certain small things that come up as you are different going through these. And I think as an adult, you look back and you sort of think about microaggressions and things like that. But as a kid, you don't really notice them. <laughs> and you, you know, you're in small towns. There's only one school. Like these are places where, you know, everyone was together and there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of diversity. It was me. Like in my grade, I was always the only Indian person. Um, I, I didn't have an experience where there's somebody else and there'd be maybe two or three black kids. And there was one Filipino girl in one of the towns, um, and there was a Chinese guy in one of the towns, and everything else was, you know, very white culture, very Midwest, um, very American culture. And so I think we, I certainly did what I could to just be a part of that, but I know for myself, it's being a part of that meant giving up a part of something else. And it wasn't if it's possible to do both, I didn't find, I personally didn't find a way to do both successfully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really interesting the way you describe that. You thinking about the trade-off sort of like, okay, so if I do this, it would give me this. But then in your mind saying, it wouldn't actually give me enough. Like it, it wouldn't let me sort of quote into the culture or wouldn't let me, whatever the goal was you're doing this sort of cost-benefit analysis of, but I know there's going to be a pain associated with giving something up that is a part of me, my family. And I need something, if I'm going to say yes to, to surrendering that, I need something bigger back. And you never, you never sort of like hit that point where you said, I'm going to get that something bigger back. So it sounds like you just kept holding on to the traditions and the culture. Um, I'm really curious also because, because of the nature of the way you describe it, sort of every five years dropping into a new town the um, I've heard this from friends of mine who grew up in in military families where they had a similar experience, you know. But but it was a shorter, usually every two to three years, and they would describe it to me as they would drop into a new place and they would literally try on a new identity. Like, ooh, you know, like I really struggled this way when I was in this place, and people very quickly perceived me as, oh, you're that kid, you know, with this identity and these qualities. And they didn't want to be that. And they, they intentionally, when they dropped into the next place, they said, oh, I'm going to try on something. Like, I'm going to step into this with a different set of, you know, like perceptions and identity. I'm curious whether you did any of that sort of like on that five-year cycle. You know, that's really interesting. And I don't know that I've thought about it that way. But I think about when we moved to Missouri, I was, I was nine years old at that point. And... I just think about like 
I often remember the lunchroom or that time before um, before the bell rings for the first um, session, like when you're hanging out in the hallway with people or you're in the lunchroom, because it's really, I mean, that's, to me, the lunchroom was a social battlefield, right? <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's, where, that's where you really have to fit in. Like being in a classroom and answering questions and doing homework, that's one thing. But it's really, it's the social part um, that you're fighting against. And I just remember, like my parents did as much as they could to make things easier. And I remember when I got to Missouri, um, so in Oklahoma, we used to take lunches. Um, and my mom would pack us food, and it was often Indian food. And it was, for me, I was one of those kids, I love eating Indian food. It's still my favorite thing to eat. I wasn't, oh, I don't want to eat this. But it was, I don't want to eat this thing that makes me look different. And so when we moved to Missouri, because we are vegetarian, and that normally wasn't part of, you know, a lunch menu back in the late 80s, <laughs> um, um, certainly in those places, like they had talked to the school and the school was willing to do an accommodation and, you know, make the, make the vegetarian meals. And even that, so that was, that was one step. But I remember there were times when, depending on which of my friends I was standing with, like I was too embarrassed to tell the lunch lady that I had the special meal. And so I would, you know, grab something small, like a piece of fruit or whatever. And I would often say, oh, I'm not hungry to my friends. But you just didn't even want to do that one step of saying, oh, I need to go do this one thing that's different. And then when we sit down, I'm going to have the food that's also different. So I remember my parents then talking to the school saying, well, she's not getting the lunches, and the lunch lady correctly had said, well, she's not asking for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think there were different things that I would try. And I think the one thing I never tried doing was changing my name. And so like Americanizing my name or, you know, coming up with a nickname. And I know a lot of people who did that, a lot of people who do that to this day, but even even now as an adult, I, most of my friends who have, you know, not a mainstream name have come up with what they call a Starbucks name, right? Um, just, to, just to get it on the coffee cup. And it, um, I, well, I don't drink coffee, so that's not, it's not a daily problem for me. Maybe if it was, um, I would have behaved differently. But whenever I've had to do a food truck or whatever, I just give them my actual name. Like I tried... I try doing a fake name every now and then, but I don't respond to it, and so I forget it's me. Um, and so I've just gotten to the point where I'm used to saying my name, spelling it, and then generally spelling it again. And that's kind of how I move through life. But yeah, there's, I think now as an adult is when I'm most comfortable. Like I think it's, you get into your late 30s, you get into your 40s. I think it took me that long to appreciate and understand everything that got me here. Mm, yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So, have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So, I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com/goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com/goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. As you shared, you end up diving into academics, pursuing law. I'm curious was you saying yes to um pursuing a career in law something that was driven primarily by your own interest or by expectations? Um it was my interest. So when I was 9 years old, I wanted to be a writer. And I remember my 4th grade teacher let me write. Um we were supposed to write a short story every week and I went to her and said, "Can I write a novel and write a chapter every week?" and she said, "Yes." and you know that's that's an example of a teacher just really doing the right thing um and encouraging someone and so and i was 12 when i said i wanted to be a lawyer and i come from a very science oriented family so my brother is a pediatric cardiologist my dad is a chemist my mom is a microbiologist so even even being a lawyer is is different you know it's it's a t- totally different skill set but i remember especially going through the moving and things like that like i remember as a young kid my parents talking about and dealing with discrimination that they felt in the workplace 
And so I think as a young kid, I, I always gravitated toward books and words and, you know, I wasn't a fan of blood. And so, you know, doctor was probably not going to be in my calling. But I think I saw that one of the things that made their immigration journey difficult was not having an appreciation of the law. And I, I think I convinced myself that a career as a lawyer meant that you could combat some of the injustices better if you had an understanding of the mechanisms um, that you could do more with it. And so I decided that at the age of 12, and now as, as a person who's been practicing law for nearly 20 years, I think you, you also learn as you become a lawyer, um, and I forgot, there's, there's a famous quote, and I'm going to probably butcher it a little bit, but it is, you know, there's justice and there is law, and rarely do the two intersect. <laughs> um, and so I think as you go through the profession, you start to realize that, that the systems, especially in the climate we're living in now, the systems are really not set up for justice, um, or at least not justice for everyone. And so I think that's become kind of some, something I really focus on as a lawyer on the side. So when I was, I, I worked on a death penalty case um, in Alabama as pro bono work, a couple years out of law school, um, was really devoted to that. And then as I continued going through my legal career, and I don't know if it's you, you become more aware of that distinction between um, justice and law. And I just really felt like if you want to impact change and reach people, I realized that was writing was a better vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. um, you're able to reach more people. You're able to say things with fewer rules. <laughs> and there's a lot more reach. And so I, you know, advocacy has always been a big part of who I am from even when I was a kid, right? I was the quiet, polite disruptor, but still, you know, a disruptor. You know, if I saw an injustice, I wanted to fix it. And I would, you know, meticulously try to figure out the best way to do it and see what I could get done. But I think that's been a big, a big part of my learning journey is I do care so much about injustice and about people feeling, feeling seen and understood and I realized the traditional legal career doesn't do that as well as other mediums do. So I'm curious because this impulse shows up really early in your life and you're doing the thing um, regardless of whether like you're a lawyer or whatever, it's just the way that you're wired. When you step into the law, the main part of your career has been around entertainment law, which is really interesting, right? Because you're involved in working with people who are telling stories across all different things and especially in like big entertainment business. And you've got this underlying impulse to advocate for the stories that you find very personally relevant and important to you. So, you know, it's, it sounds like I'm, I'm wondering about the tension between those that would sometimes come up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, it's funny because storytelling is a through line for me, right? It's it's in the law as a child, all of those like storytelling was critical to me. And so I was really excited to be a part of that as my legal career moved into that. But the thing as I got older and as I started looking more, um, you know, more at the world, you know, with the eyes of someone who's, you know, not in her 20s anymore, you realize, I think Hollywood has shaped 
public perception around the world in so many ways. Like whatever kind, I'm an avid traveler. I've been to over 70 countries, six continents. Um, I'll, I'll hit up a bunch more. But no matter where you go, American television and film is present. And, it, and it's not the reverse. We don't have every country's content here. But Hollywood is everywhere. And I think I realize, and, it, and it's changing. Everything is slow change. But it is changing a little bit where I realized that the stories that I grew up with just didn't reflect me, didn't reflect my experience, didn't reflect my parents' experience. And I wanted more of that. <laughs> you know, I wanted to figure out how I could help more of that. And we do, you know, I, I work for a studio that is championing those things, but it's, you know, they're so systemic and so deeply rooted. It's hard, you know, it's, it's not that you're going to flip a switch and suddenly everything we put out is going to be, you know, people of color or groups that have been marginalized. Um, but there, there's more and more of that, which is nice. But it is, it's a tension because I'm working on all these stories that are being told, <laughs> um, that are being told about experiences that are entertainment to me, but not personally relatable. So yeah, it definitely has been attention. And I told myself, when I set out to write The Taste of Ginger, I said, I'm writing the book that I wish had existed for me when I was younger and was trying to figure out my identity and who I am. And I look at, you know, there, there are young, young people in their 20s now who are reading that book, who I've heard from. And I think, they're so lucky. They have so many, and not just mine, they have a lot more choices. There's, there's a lot more that they can do. But for me growing up, I remember that Jhumpa Lahiri's The Namesake was, you know, the original um, Indian American author book. And I was 20 when that book came out, you know? And so for people who, and, and it was the only one for a long time. It wasn't until I would say in the last two, three years, I'm starting to read books by Indian authors. And for the first time I'm reading, I've read a couple of books by Gujarati authors because India, again, it's a big country and we're all very different and there's so many different cultures within it. And so, you know, I was in my late 30s, maybe, maybe already 40 by the time I read a book that actually reflected my words and my food and my customs, which are different from someone like Jhumpa Lahiri's who's not Gujarati. Yeah, it, it's so interesting also, right? Because you have, so you've got the the industry of law, which, and you know, like raising my hand as a very, very past life lawyer, like uh, at this yes. point in my life, which is in no small part focused on protecting against everything that could possibly go wrong. It's about minimizing the downside. It's like a, about anticipating everything that could possibly happen that would not be in in the favor of like generally your client or whoever you're representing and then protecting against it. And that often leads to weird outcomes. But then you have an, an entertainment industry. And I'm really curious what your take on this is because I only have an, I only have a lens on it from the outside in. You have an interesting inside out lens. From the outside in, it feels like the last sort of like generation in the entertainment industry has started to model the decision-making process of law, which is that instead of saying like, let's create the most amazing, cool, let's provoke, let's take, make, take, let's push people yeah. to think differently about themselves and the world. It's sort of like, 
let's figure out how to minimize risk. Let's make creative decisions based on minimizing risk as the first pass. And then after that, let's see how much we can push the envelope with the message and the story a little bit, but always within the bounds of making sure we've got the downside covered and like we're not going to lose X, Y, and Z. And it's really interesting because I see that as it makes total sense to me in the practice of law. But when you're talking about an industry, which is in no small part, you know, claiming and telling the narrative of the human condition and has a role in inviting us to push that narrative, that feels like a disaster in waiting for me. Yeah, it's, that's, that's actually a really interesting perspective. Yeah, it is. I, at the end of the day, it's a business, right? All of these things are businesses and everything comes down to money. But I think you're right that, and especially, you know, pandemic, everyone is losing money. So these last couple of years, um, I think that's obviously a big focus too. But it is, there's so much power Hollywood can wield in its storytelling because the reach is so wide. <laughs> but I think you're right that there's, there is a little bit of a risk aversion as you move through it because people are trying. I, I think at the end of the day, it is, it's about money, as, as many things are. But it is, there is the pushing of the envelope, like you said, and it tends to be partnering with the independent film companies and things like that. But it's, you know, it's something like Minari that came out. I don't know if you watched that, but it was, I mean, it was a beautiful film. But it's the one, <laughs> you know, it's, there's not 10 Minaris that have come out in the last few years um, and it did really well. But I think there is still a reluctance. I know, I know even in my journey as a writer, some of the, you know, it took, it took me a long time to get to publication and some of the, the feedback I had gotten over the decade <laughs> that, that it took to get here was, I would always get that people like the voice and they like the story, um, but occasionally I would get, oh, I just signed an Indian author, or I just, you know, had a book like this on my list, and we were kind of living in a time where there could only be one. <laughs> um, you know, you couldn't have seven Indian authors on your list, and so I would get that type of feedback um, on my own book. But I think that same concept holds true. Like you can have a crazy rich Asians, you can have a Minari, but are you going to have 20 of them? But you can have 20 like James Bond movies or Fast and Furious or, you know, other things. But I mean, my hope is that the industry continues to evolve. It's gone through a lot um, on a lot of different fronts in the last few years, but I do think it wields tremendous power to shape how people view, you know, marginalized groups, what, whatever they may be, you know, we, we just don't have a lot of, a lot of stories in those areas. Um, you know, even, even just dealing with things like tinnitus or, you know, I, I have a cousin who's, you know, who struggles with his eyesight and is very young, you know, at a young age, it's, you don't see a lot of that type of story, but I think that, I think that seeing those types of stories really does connect people and bring them together and make these things that seem scary not so scary. And I mean, my hope is that all of this continues. I think the publishing world does a better job 
of putting those stories out right now, but it's higher volume. So they've yeah. got more opportunities to do it. But then those books aren't always pushed as much as more mainstream books. So, you know, there's, there's sort of layers to everything all along the way. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So when you start working on this book and you're saying to yourself, all right, so I have my main gig, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm, yeah. I'm doing this thing. And at the same time, that writing Jones never leaves you. And, and as you described, you know, you start to think, well, maybe if the advocate side of me, like the side that really yearns to create a, a difference and address issues that matter to me, writing is the way to actually make the bigger difference there rather than sort of pure advocacy through the more traditional channels. I'm curious about that also because you could have taken that impulse in a lot of different ways. And the thing that you chose to do was literally spend a decade writing a novel. Yeah. I'm curious about that choice. I had, and I, and I think you can't explain it, but I have always been drawn to books. I've always been drawn to that particular medium because the other thing for me is I like to make life harder for myself because I like books. If I'd written screenplays, I know a lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, I know a lot of representatives in that area who would take my call. I don't know anyone in the publishing industry. So my publishing industry journey was slush pile. If I'd pursued screenwriting, I could have made life a lot easier for myself. But the book was the passion for me and it always had been. I think it goes back to I was a voracious reader as a kid. 
I would read two books a day. I remember going to the local library. You were allowed to check out 10 books at a time. I always got 10. My poor mother, I would finish them in five days, so she would have to take me back. We couldn't even get through an entire week. Um, <laughs> and, she, and she really encouraged my love of reading. But I think also as, as an immigrant kid, money was you know not plentiful at various points um, in our journey. And I think I, I I am so grateful for libraries in this country and anywhere else that they are, but the amount of entertainment and development and growth that you can get from books at a library, I mean, that was a huge part of my childhood um, where, you know, if you if you were feeling like you didn't belong, if you were feeling alone, like I could retreat to these characters and these pages. And as much as it was a hassle for my mom to take me to the library <laughs> that often, it was, you know, a free resource um, that I that I got a lot from. And so I think that has always been a part of me where it's like in some ways books, I don't know if saying they saved me is too dramatic, but they were such a big part of my childhood. And I just knew that for so many immigrants, immigrants are constantly still coming over and that the journey that I had, it's not ended, it's starting for people. And I just thought... If that person, that little kid me, um, or that teenage me can pick up a book like this, because I never could. So I think that's, a, that's one of the main reasons the books were there. It's just, it's been a lifelong love, but it was also access. It was the thing I had access to. Like we couldn't afford movie tickets or things like that, or, or even buying books a lot. You know, I remember being that kid in school and that, you know, that Scholastic magazine comes out and, you know, every, everyone in class is ordering their books. And, you know, I, I think I got to order one or two books when I was a kid, but I read thousands of books from the library. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so I, wa I wanted to make something that could reach the type of person that I think probably needs to read a book like this, or that's probably going to resonate most with a book like this and something that can be sitting in a library someday. Yeah. It's not just your younger self. It's the today version and the tomorrow version yeah. and the next day version of that younger self, knowing how impactful the form was. For you. And, but it's so interesting, right? Because like you said, you could have cut the line if you decided to write the identical story as a script, as a screenplay. I mean, yeah. you literally you're in an industry where you could literally hand it to the person that yep. thousands of others would do anything in the world to have access to. You could have just texted them and said, hey, I've got something cool. Can you take a look? And they would have said yes. And you chose not to do that, which is fascinating to me because clearly like something was so devoted in you to this form of st storytelling, to the medium that you literally said no to an opportunity that thousands of people um, would trip over themselves to have the chance to do because the actual medium was so deeply meaningful to you, not just like the story. It said like, the story mattered too, but also it was that vision of like the kid and the book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I wanted to, I wanted to write the thing that was most passionate to me. I think the other thing too, and I'm sure, cause I know you've gone through the career as a lawyer and, and have had different lives, but it's this part of my life had to be 100% authentic. It couldn't be based on expectations or um, or things that, you know, make the path easier. easier. To me, this creative journey had to be 
so authentically me. And for me, that has always been books because I think, you know, I've had to wear different hats and put on different personas if I'm in the law firm or if I'm, you know, now working at a studio or just different facets of my life, right? Like at the grocery store, you know, there's, there's different places where I have to act a certain way and can't be authentically me. And for this area, I knew this had to be so authentically me. And for me, that was books and not screenplays. Screenplays would have been, oh, you should do this because it, it will help you get to the next step and you'll have more connections and whatever. Um, but I just, I needed an area of my life that was so completely me, whether, whether you know, sink or swim, I can look back on this journey and say I was 100% true to myself and didn't sort of succumb to any outside pressure. Yeah, I love that. I, I wonder also how much... Um you know, both of us knowing the the sort of the creative process that goes on behind books, it's like, yes, you have an editor, but the, you know, like you write the entire manuscript yourself and then you go through an editing yeah. process and you still have very substantial control over like what lands in the final thing. Whereas, you know, in the, in the, the TV or film side of things, even if you write the screenplay and then it, it gets optioned or it gets picked up, you may have almost no control over like the way that the story is finally told because it becomes this much bigger collaborative process where other people are rewriting the pages on a daily basis and producing and editing. And it, so like the, the amount of control that you have over what the final form of the story is in a book is exponentially higher than it would be in more of like a film or a TV based medium. That's, that's a hundred percent true. That's such a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're, you're totally right in Hollywood you're going to get layers and layers of notes. <laughs> um, and you're going to be told this has to change in order for it to it to make it to screen. This is what it needs to be. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, that's a dream for so many people. And I think a lot of people will make that change. You know, they sort of go through the internal, oh, it's not really what I wanted. Um, but you're right. In, in terms of the editing process of this book, um, I have a fabulous editor. She has let me you know, sort of push the envelope with some of the things that I say in this book that I don't think the the reality is I look at this book and it feels like it's coming at the right time. I think if I'd gotten a book deal in 2010 when I first was out with this, I don't think I could have said as much. I don't think I would have had the confidence to push the envelope as much as I did. And I don't think the industry would have let me. But now, because of the climate that we're in, you know, my editor is championing these, these things that are, that are uncomfortable. And I think there's, you know, in, in my writing process, because The Taste of Ginger has been around for so long, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't an unconscious decision for me. It was a very conscious decision when I started writing it in 2009. I knew for me to be successful as a writer my audience had to be white readers. And so I had to write a book that was going to appeal to white readers. And so I, that was very conscious from, from the start in, in 2009, I knew I had to do that. And so I, you know, I wrote that, it's been through so many different iterations, but I, as, as the years passed and as my comfort level changed, and I think as my like, advocacy desire grew, those things that were, you know, frankly, whitewashed in the story 
I pulled out. I started pulling them out slowly, slowly until I got to the point where the story that's out now is, it's not everyone's story. It's definitely, I, no book is going to capture every immigrant story, but it's a story that feels very authentic to me and isn't, isn't sort of pandering to who I think the audience and readership should be. I hope lots of readers connect with it, but I, I really got comfortable saying to myself, you are writing this book for immigrants. <laughs> and if other people read it and connect with it, I'm over the moon, but I'm really writing it for the people, the generations who are coming after me, who are going to have an experience that was similar to mine. And I'm so happy that my editor allowed me to do that. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is interesting, right? Because the, over the decade that you sort of like, this has been in the works, the climate has changed and really major ways, some for the better, some for the worse, um, and, and, and everything in between. But in terms of not just a willingness to tell a story, but almost a mandate for the industry to get behind telling stories, even if they're not sure they're entirely comfortable, even if they're like, well, the economics, we don't know about this. There's sort of this, there, there's a public demand now that says, no, but we need these stories now and we need you to get behind it. I'm so fascinated by what your experience has been over the last couple of years. Cause so you're working on this book and you're sort of like evolving it as you feel like you need to evolve both for your own personal expression and also to meet the culture and also because you want it to be a successful book. And then the last couple of years hit, which also happens to be when this book finally gets sold. Yep. I'm curious about like the, the journey in just really the, it's very recent history. Yeah, absolutely. And so so I started writing it in 2009, so well, you know, well over a decade ago, and I, you know, I had found an agent early on, um had done revisions, never had it out on submission, um found a new agent in 2017, I think, um and then it was going on submission and I was getting a lot of what I call like but don't love. I wasn't getting this is terrible, um, which part of me at that point, because when you've been trying for so long, and I wrote a second book during that time period too, because I thought, okay, well, maybe I think I'm a good writer. Maybe it's the wrong story. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing a second book during that time. And so I kept getting the like but don't love, which for me is the motivation that you have to keep going now. If someone had just said, no, this is terrible. She's not a writer. What is she doing? I would have put it aside and I would have said, okay, I tried. It's not for me. But you get just enough, just enough hope um, that it could happen one day. And so... I had, you know, my, my agent's wonderful. She, you know, submitted it and we got so many likes, but don't loves, I don't know, maybe 40, 50, 60, I, I, I lose track and including from my current editor. Mm. <laughs> and so in March, 2019, and she had gone, um, she had gone out of her way and said, I'll have a conversation with her, which most people won't do when they're, when they're passing on something. And she said, I'll have a conversation with her, um, about, some edits that I would like to see. Um, and so I had that conversation because for me, again, going back to my, my maven, I'm collecting information, right? <laughs> I'm trying to, anything to me, information is power. And the more I learn about the industry, I don't know much about it. The more I learn about anything, I can use it to grow. And that's sort of my life philosophy is I want to collect as much information as possible and use it to grow. So I have this conversation with her and she says she'll look at it again, like a revise and resubmit, essentially. 
if I do that. And so I had a long conversation with my agent about whether I should do that because I was finishing up my second book by then. And based on the feedback I'd gotten, I said, I think the second book is maybe a story that is going to be more palatable to people. Um, so maybe we should focus on that. And so I did that. And my agent had said, you know, these revise and resubmits are, it's very rare that anything comes of them. And that all made sense to me. You know, she said, if, if people know how to revise it, they'll generally just make you the offer and go through the process with you. So then in August 2020, the world is on fire, you know, in so many different ways. And she calls me. And so, it's, you know, it's essentially 18 months later. It was August or September. And she says that the editor that I'd spoken to before reached back out again and asked if the project was still available. And it was. And so I had a very long conversation with my agent because I'm looking at the world around me and I didn't revise anything. I didn't even move a comma. Um, so what is it that made this exact manuscript worth making an offer now that it wasn't worth 18 months ago? And, you know, and my agent was very candid and she said, we don't we don't see this happen. Nor, you know, obviously we're going through a racial reckoning right now. Every industry is going through it. And people, I think, are looking at the type of content that's being put out there. I think everyone's just sort of looking as companies and looking as individuals, myself included. You know, it doesn't we're all part of this journey and so, you know, I, I asked her the, the types of questions someone like me would ask, which is because nothing has changed and it's unusual and no one has ever heard of someone coming back after they've passed when you've made no changes. And so, you know, I asked her, I said, is this, is this like a racial motivation? Is, is there a quota system? And is it going to get taken seriously? You know, I had a two hour conversation with her because um, I wanted to be so excited. I have a book deal, um, you know, but, but I said, what, what is this? What is being asked of me to do this? Because at this point, I've now changed inside and I know I'm not going to whitewash this thing at all. <laughs> so if that's what's being asked of me, it's not going to happen. Um, and I'm better off just waiting and seeing if I write something later and, you know, that, that catches fire. And, you know, and I think we both felt that my editor was very genuine about the process and who knows what happened 18 months ago um, internally. And maybe, you know, maybe it didn't get approved. You know, maybe she wanted it and it didn't get approved. Who knows? Right. But, you know, I talked to my agent and I said, this is this is my dream. <laughs> um, this is my dream since the age of nine. And if I can publish the story I want to publish I will then do everything I can to make it a success. <laughs> you know, there's no guarantees on anything. Um, but so we went through that process, but it really was, you know, for me morally too, it just, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, the weight of everything, all of that. And I look at where I am and it's humbling to me. It's very sad to me, but it's hard for me to not look at where I am and say, I am uh, you know, somewhat of a beneficiary of these horrible things that have happened because people are taking a closer look at what's going on in these industries. And I'm seeing a lot more people of color getting book deals since that time, which, which is great, but it's also so, you know, tragic and sad of what needed to happen to see that change industry-wide. Um, so it, it definitely, you know, it was... It was an interesting moment to have gotten the book deal in, in the way that it came about, just in terms of what was going on in the world and, 
you know, I, th I think those are feelings that you'll, uh, I'll probably be dealing with for, for some time, but at least now I'm seeing that the mission I had with the book, which is for people to feel seen and understood, you know, it's, it's early days, but I'm getting that feedback. And so I feel like, I feel like I've done my job and I'm so happy that I've had the support of my editor and my agent in being able to put out this book in the way that it exists today. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful. It's like the book itself, the concept for the book itself, the manuscript has had its own um, hero's heroine's journey. And it's it's got to be um, really complicated for you, you know, because on the one hand, it's like, this is the dream. And it is the book that you wanted to, to actually put out to the world. You know, like you all the, the concerns about what do I have to do to make the market quote, you know, like receive it well. You're just like, nah, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do. And hopefully like, you know, the market shows up for it. And at the same time, it is after a moment of just profound pain and reckoning um, that continues to this day. And God willing, will continue not on the pain side, but the reckoning and the transformation. And, and so it's to be creating something that on the one hand, you know, like you've been working on for, in theory, your entire life, but this particular yeah. project the last yep. decade and then like having it meet this moment. Yeah, that's complicated, but at the same time, hopeful and inspiring. And what's so fascinating is that, you know, the book, it's an immigrant story. Um, as you shared, you know, it's different in a lot of ways from you. It, you know, it's the story of, of a woman who starts in India, comes to the US and then is called back. And I won't share any spoilers here, but it's a really beautiful, deeply moving story that also touches on all the different topics and the issues that we've been talking about. But in in a narrative way, and in the context of her story, and at the same time, we had Liz Gilbert on a number of times, and and I remember her telling me when we were talking about her novel City of Girls, she's like, you know what, everything you need to know about me, Liz, you'll know by simply reading the novel. Like you don't need to read my nonfiction to know me. And I feel the same way. Like, and that's my curiosity with this book for you. Like, it feels like, okay, so it's not necessarily your biography in there. But it seems like so much about who you are, what you value, what your beliefs are, is woven into the story in so many beautiful and compelling ways. Yes. And I I heard your interview with Liz Gilbert, however many years ago that was. And I have to say, I will answer your question, but I have to say, your podcast is the first podcast I ever listened to. Ah. I'm 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 not an avid podcast person, but I was I was at a point in my life and I was looking for, you know, I was I was dealing with a, a difficult breakup and some health issues and I was looking for something that could, you know, shed positivity mm. um, into my world and so I you know, the the magic of Google um, it came up. And so I started listening to you all those years ago. Um, so this for me is a very personally fulfilling <laughs> um, and surreal experience to, to even be here talking to you from having listened to you for all those years. But I, it's funny because I, I remember that interview very well. And I remember that comment very well because it resonated with me immediately because at that point I'd written two books. And this book in particular, uh, The Taste of Ginger, I knew while it's not my facts and it's not my family and it's not my story, the emotion, the heart 
a lot of that is mine. And I, I have thought about that Liz Gilbert quote so many times when I read any fiction, since I heard that on your podcast, I do think about that of what's woven into an author's fiction. I think, I think that's true. I think we convince ourselves, oh, it's fiction. So I can say this thing that's deeply there and I can just hide behind the cloak of fiction. But when you write nonfiction, you know, everyone knows it's you. But I think there's definitely the es- a lot of the essence of that book, the struggle, the identity, the internal angst, a lot of that definitely are things I've experienced at different points in life or that other people around me have or just things that I have thought about. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm that person that just really looks the world around and wants to know why it is the way it is and will read, you know, a thousand bucks. <laughs> if it comes to that, like like during 2020, I'm that person that as I'm seeing the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, gaining so much steam, I'm that person that I think in 2020, I read 40 or 50 nonfiction books about racism. Because <laughs> there's always more to learn, you know? And so that's who I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that there, I think there's so much to be said about an author's real life in their fiction work. I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not in that book. <laughs> mm, yeah. When you've spent so much time on a work like this and it finally is coming out into the world and it's coming out into the world in a moment where um, it's important, you know, it's, it's not just fun and cool and amazing writing and a fantastic story. It, you know, it, it feels like there. this is a book which could be seen as an important book. When you're in this moment, I'm curious, just on a personal level, do you look at this and say, okay, so now I need to basically just, I'm launching it into the world, I'm, I'm giving it life, and it will do whatever it needs to do? Or do you, do you say, I have a dream for this, I have an intention for it, this is what I want to happen with it? You know, is it more of just a surrender and watch, or I want something for this? Um, I feel like maybe somewhere in between, this is all new to me, this process, right? This creative process is all new to me. And so I didn't know, I didn't know who I was going to be, right? There's, there's the people that say, I'm not going to touch reviews. I don't, I don't know what's in there. There are the people that read everyone. There's different things that come out of this process once it's launched, right? And so I didn't know who I was going to be, but I was just going to try and go with my intuition and go with my gut. And so... I have read the reviews. I didn't know if I would, but I think part of it is the first few reviews that came out were very good. And they were exactly what I wanted readers to get. And so I had a positive experience doing that. If my first review had been a two-star review of someone who hated it, I may have made a different decision. But I, that wasn't my experience, which I'm grateful for. And so because I've had good traction, I am following it. And sort of seeing how it's received, I've gotten a couple emails from Indian immigrants, which those those just really touch my heart. That's why I did it. So on on the one hand, those emails and that feedback, that's why I wrote it. So I feel like I've already done what I set out to do. And I I hope there's more of that. But I don't know that there's a goalpost um, that I am trying to meet beyond that. I'm trying to, I'm doing the opposite of my lawyer job and I'm trying to keep this so emotionally grounded (laughs) Um, and just letting the universe, like I'm a person, it's it's hard for me to just trust the universe 
and, you know, just hope that there's a plan and all those things. Like I'm the person who says, if I work really hard, that's how outcomes happen. They don't just happen because I deserve them. Um, They happen because of hard work. And that's sort of the life motto, if you will, that I was raised with that, you know, I'm sure comes from my parents. But for this process, I'm really just trying to take it in and enjoy it. And I'm lucky because I had a two book deal. So I knew that there's a, there's another book coming out, so there's a, there's sort of a there's a chance too, <laughs> um, if this goes really awry and things don't work out the way that I had hoped, there's a redemption opportunity that comes through. But hope, hopefully they're just both received well. But I think for this one, it really was I cared so deeply about people feeling seen and understood who haven't been, and I'm already starting to get that feedback. So I already feel very very blessed with where I am. Mm, I love that. Um, and it feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So in this container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think for me, it is to learn who you are and fully accept that and then just be grounded in gratitude. I think gratitude is is one of my core um, fundamental beliefs. And I think that I think for me, it's that learn who you are, accept it and have a lot of gratitude. Mm, Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Dr. Sayantane Dasgupta about writing stories that expand the landscape of popular narratives. You'll find a link to her episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.